0: Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us and welcome to the Christmas season. Now, I know some of you have been following the tradition of Advent and you've begun celebrating. Others of us are beginning this week, but no matter where you are, you are on the Christmas journey, welcome as we begin our Christmas series in this very unique moment. Symbols are everywhere. Symbols point us, remind us, inspire us, they challenge us, they make us joyful, they make us angry, they move us to action, they move us to resist, they can comfort us. Think about it, our culture is full of symbols. The Apple logo, uh, the infinity circle, the rainbow flag, the rise of the emoji, the swastika, the cross, the crescent moon, from Mickey Mouse ears to the raised fist of Black Lives Matter, our lives and our feeds are swimming in symbols. Symbols. Now, we, throughout the Christmas story, are so many, many symbols, which we're going to focus on over the next few weeks. But we need to remember as we get going, whether you've grown up in the church and you're a second, third, or fourth generation Christian, you're a seeker or skeptic, or you've, you've, you have no concept of what we're talking about, the symbols we're going to engage with were not symbols at first. Only later did they become the icons, the images, the portraits, the symbols of what we now call the Christian faith. And let us also remember as we celebrate Christmas in this semi-lockdown, not going to be usual, can't hang out with each other, can't be in the malls as usual Christmas. At the end of 2020, (laughs) the symbols we're talking about were, were born and experienced first in the dark. We're born in uncertain times, very eventful, unsafe times. Just like we're experiencing somewhat now, and, and, and like we, we just heard, Christmas is not a time to retreat from reality, but an invitation to rediscover it. Since so many of our past distractions and crushes seem to be removed and gone, at least in this moment. Now, one of my favorite Christmas symbols, and most of you know I'm a Christmaholic, but one of my favorite Christmas symbols, more modern one, is the candy cane. Have you eaten one yet? Has it contributed to the COVID-15? Some of you know what I mean. In the late 1800s, a candy maker in Indiana wanted to express the meaning of Christmas and he wanted to make the symbol out of candy. Very smart. (laughs) He came up with the idea of bending one of his white candy sticks into the shape of a cane and incorporating multiple other symbols of Jesus' love and sacrifice into it. So he took a white plain peppermint stick And of course, he chose that because the white symbolized the purity and sinless nature of Jesus. And then he took three small red stripes to symbolize the pain, the torture really Jesus went through before the cross. And then he added one bold red stripe to represent Jesus's pain on the cross in his blood shed for humanity. And then, of course, he made it in the shape of a crook. Because Jesus is the good shepherd, the shepherd of all humanity. And then when you turn it upside down, it becomes a J, which, of course, it is the name or the first letter in the name of Jesus. See, the candy cane was invented to teach children and the world and act as a lasting reminder of what Christmas is really all about. By the way, next time you're looking at a candy cane or you give someone a candy cane, tell them the true story of the candy cane. You'll end up witnessing to them about Jesus. See, Christmas is all about God coming to serve all of us, and the candy cane, this modern symbol of servanthood, is only understood best in view of the first and most significant service symbol, our first symbol in this Christmas series, which we now famously call the manger. Let me say this again. The first Christmas takes place in the dark. It's been 400 years since God spoke through the prophet Malachi. God, in this moment, to the Jewish people, seemed so distant, so silent. God seemed to hide his face, and there was chaos everywhere. Does that feel like your reality? And, And also, I want you to understand, not one Christmas tree on earth, No decorations, no family gatherings, no churches, no grand cathedrals, no Oh Holy Night, no Away in a Manger, no Eggnog Latte, oh my goodness, no Christmas presents, nothing. I mean, in this season, we're gonna experience just a little bit of what the very first Christmas actually was in reality. But again, as everything looks and feels different this year, as we look at these symbols and these traditions, We can even celebrate in darker times because our movement was born in a darker time. As I've shared before, as we get going, Christmas, in the Christmas story, Luke unfolds his picture of Christmas in three parts. Mary and Joseph travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem and then Jesus is born and then there's this grand epic encounter between an angel and then a choir of angels and some shepherds. And the symbol that unites all three of those things is the manger, and as we head towards the first symbol, again, let us come back to the first reality of the very first Christmas. Mary is still an unwed mother, homeless forced to look for shelter, heavy taxation, a hostile government. Israel is a land recovering from civil war like Syria or Afghanistan today. It is land at the same time that is occupied by a foreign army and personal rights and ethnic wants and religious freedom have been removed by sword, politics, and crucifixion. Many, many people had been killed and were being killed. Herod, who was sort of the puppet ruler for Rome, working alongside of Rome, was cruel and botcherous and gluttonous he was involved in power. He was sexually undiscriminating and profoundly abusive. That's the Christmas story beginning. Luke records it like this in Luke 2.1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. A census should be taken of the entire Roman world. I've shared this before. Let me do it again. Caesar Augustus, born Gaius Octavius. Now, the Roman Senate bestowed upon him the title Augustus and made him the known ruler of the known world, and he ruled to 14 AD. He was seen as this epic leader and actually viewed more as God than human. Here's one ancient description from his time that summarized how the Roman world viewed their leader. Divine Augustus Caesar, son of God, emperor of land and sea, benefactor and savior of the whole world. Sound familiar? In Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey today, that whole region used Augustus' birthday to start and mark their new year. And it's amazing what they proclaim about him. This is what they'd say. The birthday of this God marked the beginning of the good news for the whole world. I want you to notice the language once again or for the first time. Augustus is divine. Divine. Caesar is the son of God. He's the savior of the world. His reign is the beginning of good news for all people. He is the one who's called really the prince of what? Peace. Well, during his reign, he's a brilliant administrator and architect and builder and soldier. He calls for a census. He wants to count every single person in his whole vast empire for the sake of taxation. And when this was done, Got to remember, all these countries have now been conquered and it's like ripping off a Band-Aid. Our language would be like it's triggering or re-traumatizing. One historian writes this from a Jewish perspective. The census signals the unwelcome alien intrusion into the affairs of the Jewish people, a reminder of the allegiance required by Israel as a conquered people to Rome. And so it's into that world with that leader that Luke records his expression of the Christmas story. It says in Luke 2, 3, so everyone went to their own town to register. The average person was called by the government to register not where they were living, but where their ancestral home was, where their place of origin was. And so we are now walking with the Holy Family on their way home to Bethlehem in a dusty, unknown part of the empire. But what the empire does not know, because they only live down here, God is sovereignly working everything out, is that the journey that's being forced on this couple and all people by the Roman Empire is actually going to be the beginning of their own undoing. (laughs) So Joseph, verse 4, also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Okay, Bethlehem. The story begins to fill in now. 700 years earlier, the Jewish community knew that much was to come out of this place. I mean, the prophet Micah had said in, in, in Micah 5 too, but you, Bethlehem, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel. More amazingly, I've shared this in Christmases past, Bethlehem actually means house of bread. And Jesus, of course, we know later will be called what? The bread of life. So the bread of life is going to be born in the house of bread and he's going to feed the whole world. Already we begin to see the good news for everyone. And of course, Joseph is from the line of David. Do you see it again today, Sanctus? David, of course, the greatest Jewish king that had ever lived. But more, what did God say millennia earlier? to David, through the prophet Samuel. And in the context of Samuel, 2 Samuel seven twelve when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, this is God speaking, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for my name. And I, this is God speaking, will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Watch this. David lived and died. And then Solomon, just like was prophesied, came and built the temple. But Solomon's kingdom did not continue and last forever and ever because there was a civil war and all sorts of stuff. So someone else would have to establish this. And this is where the Christmas story focuses in. Do you remember when Gabriel met with Mary? One of the things Gabriel first says to Mary in that first encounter is that the one that would be born of her would be given the throne of David. In other words, the one being born now will actually establish a kingdom that will never end. Okay, let's just stop here. If you're a seeker today or a skeptic or you belong to another faith, you're a Muslim, a Hindu, I I don't know what your background is or you're just spiritual or you're nothing. This is for you. Please lean in. Do you know that in the Old Testament, there are 300 different predictions or prophecies that someone had to fulfill completely to actually claim to be the Messiah or the Christ. If you missed one of them, you were done. You were false. Now, I want you to lean in. One wrote this. These prophecies are specific enough that the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling a handful of them is staggeringly improbable, let alone impossible. A guy named Peter Stoner, the chairman of a department of mathematics and astronomy in Pasadena College, had a huge passion for dealing with what we call biblical prophecy. And so what he did is he gathered a group of students and they worked this out. They looked at only eight of the 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And they came up with an extremely conservative probability for each one being fulfilled. And they considered the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling not just one of them, but eight out of the 300. The conclusion to his research was staggering. The prospect that anyone would satisfy prophecies, these just eight, was one in 10 to the power of 17. That's just eight out of the Three hundred. In Science Speaks, he describes it like this. He says, let's try to visualize just the fulfillment of eight. If you mark one ticket and place them all in a hat and thoroughly shake them and stir them and ask a blindfold man to draw one out, the chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. Fine. But now let's go to the 10 to the power of 17. Suppose we take that number and we use silver dollars and we lay them over Texas. If you did that they would cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Now, you mark just one of those silver dollars, and then you stir all those silver dollars across the whole state. And then you get the blindfolded man and tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he has to pick up the one silver dollar and say, this is the right one. What would be the chance of him getting the right one? It's the same mathematical probability that the prophets would have had writing just eight of these prophecies, having them all fulfilled in one person from their day to the present time. So watch this. That's just eight, and there's 300 of them. He had to come from the line of David, by the way. He had to be born in Bethlehem. Even the Old Testament, it refers to crucifixion. There's all these things. See, here's the point. If you're a seeker or a skeptic, or you're not sure if the Bible's trustworthy, let me tell you, it is Jesus ends up fulfilling all 300 of these predictions. It is impossible, and yet God's involved. Well, back to the story, Luke 2, 5. So they went to, he went there to register with Mary, that's Joseph, who was pledged to be married to him and expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for a baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Ah, okay. Let's start this. If you're taking notes or highlighting or thinking, highlight or circle the time had come. Yes, of course, it's physical. The baby was coming. The water had broken. This happens billions of times. But no, no, there's more here. This language is evocative about God's move in history. In other words, each line here is happening physically, but there's also this historic religious significance. Jesus is about to be born in God's timing. And interesting that Jesus is called the firstborn son. Now, yes, this is a birth order statement, but there's more here. Just lean in. God's people, the Jews, Israel, also carried the title firstborn son. And when was it given to them? It was given to them when they were actually in Egypt under Pharaoh. And remember, Moses was sent and was called by God to tell Pharaoh, let my people go because they need to be saved. And that Exodus and that title is foreshadow of the reality here. Exodus 4.22, Moses, said to Pharaoh, this is what God says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. And so this firstborn son who is about to be born is the very God that spoke to Moses and he has now come into the world to set us all free from the pharaohs of the world and the gods that keep us enslaved. And this sovereign one, this eternal one, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, is wrapped, it says, in cloths. Or if you grew up listening to the King James, he was in swaddling what? Clothes. Now, the royal one, tightly wrapped in a swaddling position to sleep well, is laid in the iconic Christmas symbol we're talking about today, the manger. Okay, question one, what's a manger? And question two, what does Luke even mean by an inn? Because I'm pretty sure there was no Motel 6s or Hilton Garden Inns back then. Well, if you read the scholars, inn could be a lot of different things. First of all, it could be a home. In very poor homes uh, back then and still today in the Middle East, animals shared the same space with the adults. And they use heat. In other words, the animals live on the bottom floor and the family lives upstairs or vice versa. And it sort of heats the home. So Mary and Joseph could have been on the roof or the main level of a house with the animals because there was no room. Others say it could be a cave attached to the house or beside the house where the animals were. Others say it could have been an open air courtyard uh, to a house or inn and that's where the animals were. Others say, well, it could be A mixture of those now mary and joseph easily could have been a guest at family and friends but their home was so overcrowded because all the other relatives showed up earlier or actually maybe the house or inn was filled with soldiers because they were involved in census taking and so they took priority because they're the conquerors or maybe the guy was just a jerk and there was some heartless unmentioned innkeeper But whether if it was a cave or a barn or part of a house, the place where Jesus is laid is the manger. And the manger is a feed trough for animals. I mean, that's what a manger is. And usually it's carved out of stone, and you just put slop in it. It was Bede, the great English church leader from the Middle Ages, and also one of the great historians of England, that so articulately brings this home. Please lean in. It should be noted that the sign given of the Savior's birth is not a ch- child enfolded in Augustus purple, uh, Tyron purple, in other words, Caesar's expensive, lavish clothing, but one wrapped in, wrapped in rough pieces of cloth. He is not to be found in some ornate golden bed, but in a manger. The meaning of this is that he did not just merely take upon himself our lowly mortality, But for our sake, took upon himself the clothing of the poor. Though he was rich, he for our sake became poor. So that by his poverty, we might become rich. Though he is the Lord of heaven, he became a poor man on earth. To teach those who live on earth that by poverty of spirit, notice, not becoming poor physically, poverty of spirit, they might enter the kingdom of God. So the very first sign is the manger where Jesus is laid, and it teaches us so much. But there is this second sort of semi-image and phrase that matters, that captures actually the world and many of our and our family and friends and co-workers' resistance to the real promise of the real Christmas. But thanks be to God that in his sovereignty, he overcomes our darkened and unwelcome hearts. It's that phrase, and it is actually a symbol. No room in the inn. Not welcome, not understood, not seen, crowded out, less influential, less powerful, out on the margins. This is how the majority of the human family will respond truly to Jesus in time. And it's true even today. But God's never done. God keeps searching and looking and showing up in unexpected places. And so what happens next in the story, many of you know, verse 8. <laughs> there were shepherds living out in fields nearby, keeping their watch over their flocks at night. I've also shared this in years past. Shepherds were normal people, everyday people, blue-collar, average-day, hard-working people. Shepherds in our culture would be someone working at Timmy's or McDonald's, a cashier at a grocery store, a janitor in an apartment building, a plumber in a small town, someone who cleans up at a food court, someone who works on the line in an Amazon factory. Now These jobs are not lesser, nor are the people that do them. But I think all of us would say if there was going to be a world-changing, God-entering-into-time event, we are not going to go, well, that's going to happen at Walmart or McDonald's, or it's not going to happen at some public school as some janitor is actually cleaning up and doing COVID protocols after hours. I mean, he's going to show up to a government official or the United Nations or, or the prime minister or a president. Or No, no. That's exactly what happens. God shows up in the wrong place. The angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, verse 9, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The darkness, the normal, the broken, is, is broken by brilliant light. Now, remember, I have to share this every year because we got to remember, because we're in 2020. These people had never seen light like us no flashlights, no cars, no streetlights, no spotlights, no, no airplanes overhead. Like they had seen oil lamps. And candles. They had not seen light like we're used to. These hardworking, blue-collar, fought-off wolves, lived with the sheep guys, suddenly are reduced to fright, frightened children. And the glory, the light that's mentioned in this moment, by the way, matters so much, and we have to recapture it every Christmas. See, here's what one theologian wrote. The appearance of God's glory, the Shekinah glory, the divine glory... In this place, it's remarkable. See, God's glory is normally associated with the temple. But now it's manifested on a farm. God's light and presence on a farm is a sign again to come that light will even enter into the human heart. In other words, God's going to show up in the unexpected places where he shouldn't technically, we would say, be. The angel ends up in verse 10 talking to the shepherds, don't be afraid. I bring you good news for great joy. It's going to be for all people, not just Jews, not just for religious people, not just for the brilliantly educated, all people, because all people are made in the image of God. So this is going to be for all families, all culture groups, all nations to know God through Jesus. The angel keeps speaking. And as he keeps on speaking, I'm sure the words echoed over the field. Each shepherd, I think probably suddenly was getting it. This is not last night's hummus. This is not a hallucination. We are all seeing this together. This is really an angel. This is actually supernatural. And what he is declaring to us, we as Jewish men understand. Every Jew has been taught this since they were born. I mean, these are the prophecies we've been taught by our rabbis. And this is happening to us and angel is telling us as shepherds today. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a feeding trough, in a manger. We might ask the question, how do we know that this little kid that's in the wrong place in a feeding trough, can really do what this angel is saying? Well, we know it because of the titles, the names that are given. He is Savior. Jesus saves us from death. Jesus saves us from our sin. Jesus saves us from original sin. Jesus overcomes the demonic. Jesus is going to break death. And Jesus even overcomes our own accusing hearts. He is Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. The whole Jewish faith, the whole Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi was actually preparing the world for Jesus' coming. And he is also Lord. He is God. He's the same God that walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He's the same God that talked and called Abraham. He's the same God that saved Joseph and wrestled with Jacob and met uh, met Moses at the burning bush. He's the same God that David sang the Psalms to and Solomon built the temple for. He's the same God that spoke through the mouth of the prophets. He is now here. That is why he's called Emmanuel. Say it with me. What? God with us. Oh, let's just pause for a second. Do you not catch the coming conflict? Jesus is truly divine, not Caesar. Jesus is the real son of God, not Caesar. Jesus is the true savior of the world, not Caesar. Jesus' kingdom will last forever, not Caesar's, not any others, his. Jesus' birth, that's the good news for all people, not Caesar's. Jesus' peace is real and will last, not Caesar's. So who's the real king? And whose kingdom really matters? Oh, by the way, that question still matters today in 2020 in every country, but also for every single human heart. When well, we come back to the first Christmas symbol here, let me repeat what the angel said to the shepherds. This will be the sign, the symbol to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Okay, this is when it gets amazing. This is when it gets so intriguing. Intriguing. So far, there's been a threefold description. Jesus is wrapped in cloths, probably linen or rough cloth. He's in a manger, in a a dugout sort of probably stone Ephesus where they eat from, and there's no room in the inn. All of this is a foreshadow of what's going to happen on Good Friday. As I've shared before, and many other pastors have, you always must read Christmas in light of Easter. The threefold rhythm repeats itself on Good Friday. Luke 23 52, going to Pilate, Nicodemus asked for Jesus' body. And then he took it down. And he wrapped Jesus' body in linen cloths and placed his body in a tomb cut out of rock, which no one had yet been laid in. The symbol of the manger gives us an understanding of what's coming on Good Friday. Well, the angels know this is coming. That's why they break out in verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. This is an announcement like no other. This announcement declares peace. The Jewish word, the Hebraic word word is shalom. Justice, universal healing, reconciliation between God and humanity, money, power, sex, military might, status, education, rights, human rights, religion. They will never give full peace. They can't. But this baby, this one who's laying in the iconic symbol of the manger, not only breaks into our darkness and our hiddenness and our uncomfortability and says, I have the answer for sin, pain, death, demons, and brokenness. I just don't have the answers, the wisdom. I am the answer. (laughs) By the way, why does this song sung by the angels matter? Or a chant? Well, here's why it matters, and you might not know this. To a Jewish person hearing and reading this, this would be like drastic, shocking, like jarring. Because if you actually read the chant or the song that the angels sing, it's almost identical to the song sung by angels to God in the temple. So in other words, what's basically happening is the focus again is moving from the temple to a farmer's field, because the glory of God is now there and it's not over there anymore. Well, the great announcement, the shocking epic moment comes to an end. The darkness comes back again. The angels disappear. disappear, The normal happens again. Everything looks the same again. The environment, you could say, was the same. But the shepherds now living in the darkness are not the same anymore. Luke 2.15, so they said to each other, I bet you they did. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which God has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread word concerning what had been told them about this child. I know thousands of us listening to this have heard this story a thousand times. Maybe a few of you, this is your first time or you're not fully familiar and you're getting used to it. But what is the God of the manger and the God of heaven and earth saying to us here now in Sanctus Church or whatever church you belong to or no church? What is he saying in 2020, in this semi-dark, semi-lockdown, difficult season? Well, here's the first thing. God still comes to us in our dark times. God is with us. He has not left us alone. What was Jesus' promise? He would never leave us or forsake us. If you are feeling right now, you're one of the people like I feel so alone and God is so distant and life is so untenable and, and boring or isolated, you're not alone. God is with you. Like he showed up unexpectedly to those shepherds and he showed up unexpectedly after 400 years of feeling silence, now God is with you. And I, and I know this is what I'm supposed to preach and it makes sense. No, I'm literally saying to some of you, God is speaking now to you and saying, he is literally with you. This is for some of you. And I actually would want to stop and say, in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you, Holy Spirit, it is my humble request that you would actually let people see and know the presence of Jesus right now in their homes, in their families, in their situations, so they would know that they're not alone. Though they live in the darkness, they're not the same. Number two, we need to be reminded this Christmas that God came to serve us. Isn't that incredible? God serves us. Jesus came and laid in a manger so he would die that we might live. The manger is the great symbol of serving. The king of kings, the prince of peace, the lord of lords, the one that created reality, surrounded by billions of angels. Holy perfection comes for his sinful, rebellious children to provide a way back home. God has come for us. The manger is always in the shadow of the cross. By the way, if you're a seeker again or a skeptic, if you're an atheist or agnostic, if you're spiritual, If you genuinely belong to another faith, you you might be devoutly Jewish or or a Muslim or Hindu or Zoroastrian or a Wiccan witch. I don't know where you are in, in the faith experience. God is speaking at this moment. Some of you are like, I'm an atheist. It doesn't matter. God is still speaking. Your unbelief does not make him not exist. He's asking you to respond to the one that was laid in the manger. See, when we accept Jesus Christ, you're actually saying, God, I want you to apply the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the physical death of Jesus, the work on the cross, and his physical resurrection into my life so I can be new. It is never your family background or ethnic background or your good works that will make the difference. The only way that you get saved, you come into relationship with God, is you actually agree with what the angels sang that he is Savior, Leader, and Lord. And like a marriage, you choose to say yes. Then, and only then, does the occupant of the manger actually serve you. You want to know the result of Christmas? You're a seeker or skeptic today, or of another faith? Here is the summary of why Jesus was born. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in Jesus will not die, but have eternal life. God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. What do you do with the one who's laid in the manger? What do you do with him? He is the fulfillment of prophecies. He is who he claims. He's come to serve you, to set you free. Just say yes to him. For we who have said yes, one of the most significant, helpful, spirit-given reminders in this dark COVID, unusual Christmas season is that actually the manger is one of the first signs of what we now call the church. What's church all about? What are church services all about? What, what are connect groups all about? What is serving in Jesus' name all about? It's a community of people who gather around Jesus and worship him. It's Jesus-centered. Who keeps us together? Who gathers such a vast, di- disagreeing diversity of people and keeps us around each other, but the focus is him? It's Jesus. And this is, this is the reminder that's needed. Are everyone ready? If you're sort of going on something now and ignoring me, look back at the screen. The shepherds left the sheep. Did you notice that? They're busy, all-consuming jobs. They lived where they worked, by the way. They had no backup, no work, no money, no food. And yet they made time to even leave their most significant thing to experience gathered community. They came together to worship God and encounter Jesus. So in other words, come prepared. Make regular time virtually in these moments or semi-in-person or in-person and meet God and meet each other. And like the shepherds, follow their example. Make the gathering of Jesus significant and non-negotiable. Because only when we continue to come back and encounter Jesus and hear his word and sing to him and give to him, only when that happens, then we will be reminded we're called to go back out and share with others like the shepherds did. But I want to end with this. Years and years ago, I preached a similar sermon and was rereading this ending. And I sensed the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to preach, re-preach this ending. And this is important to a small group of you. I don't know who you are, but someone or a group of people, wherever you are in the world, I do not know. But you are Christians, but you are doubting the goodness of God and you're starting to give yourself over to the influence of the world and Caesar." So to you who are running Christians or doubting Christians or actually inside you're starting to turn but no one knows yet or to use an old church word, backslidden Christians, you you know Jesus, but the difference between you and someone who does not know Jesus is actually not that different. I want to remind you, God actually I think is speaking to you. The Christmas story is a contrast between two kings, two saviors, two princes of peace Two lords, two kingdoms, one's from heaven and one's from earth. One's found in the manger, the other surrounded by power and sex and money and wealth and rights and the good life and conformity based on legislation and rule and power and being self-made. One is temporal, one is eternal. One is based in eternal love, the other appears like love until you're used and then you're gone. You can only serve one of the two. Do you want Jesus or do you want Caesar? This is what the Holy Spirit is saying to a few of you. Hear the word of God. Hear the words of Jesus, the one who was laid in the manger, who has come to give peace. Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your soul's. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. God is intervening in this moment, just like he did with the shepherds. He's unexpectedly coming to some of you and saying, and you're hearing this and you know this is you. And God is saying, stop, come back to the manger, come back to Jesus, come back to the things of God. Billy Graham, years and years ago, wrote this and it's so good. No room for Jesus? No room for the King of Kings? No. No but room for others and other things. There was no room for Jesus in the world that he, he had made. Imagine that. Things really haven't changed very much since Bethlehem and that night 2,000 years ago, have they? I mean, God is still on the fringes of most of our lives. We fit him in when it's convenient for us, but we become quite irritated when he makes, this is the key word, demands on us. If God would only stay in his little box and come out when we pull the string. Our lives are so full, there's so much to be done. But in all our business, and all our activities, are we in danger of excluding from our hearts and lives the one who actually made us? If you're that person on the run and you know God is speaking to you, this is the simple thing you need to pray. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for you. Welcome to the Christmas season. It's not going to be the same this year. It's going to be totally different. And we don't even know what it's going to be like by Christmas Eve here in Canada, let alone where you might be listening in the world. But no matter where you are and whether you got your Christmas shopping done or not, whether you can gather with family or friends or you cannot, remember this. You are not alone. God is with you. Do not forget that. Number two, gather around Jesus virtually or physically so you can encounter the meaning of Christmas and be encouraged. For you who are seekers and skeptics, embrace him. And for you who are on the run, stop running in the wrong direction and run back to the manger. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, true living God, God of Israel and the church, Thank you for this Christmas moment. Thank you that even in 2020, in these darker times, we have hope and we know the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the Prince of Peace. Thank you that he's the Son of God. Thank you he's the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Thank you this is for all people, not just some. And so we now, as a whole church, dedicate ourselves to celebrating Jesus over the next two or three weeks. And we say yes to him. And I pray for those who have not said yes, that they would. For those who are on the run, you'd confront them and bring them home. For, for others of us to make this priority, and for all of us, I pray again that the presence of Jesus would be felt supernaturally in our places. Thank you, Jesus. Your hope is strong. Keep working it out this Christmas, we ask, in the name of Jesus. And we all said, uh, amen. cannot wait to see you next week as we get involved in the second symbol in this Christmas season. Uh, We'll see you then. God bless.